Hi, I'm Mark Haywood, and this is Behind the Spine, a podcast which finds learning opportunities for writers in the most unlikely of places. What you want from that gothic house is the sense of being overwhelmed while also having a sense of unease and claustrophobia as well. Those two things twin together. Grand hotels, places of glamour and comfort, where guests pay over the odds to experience unrivaled levels of luxury. At check-in, you'll rarely feel uneasy stepping into the vast and opulent lobby or wandering the winding corridors to your room. But when the lights go out, well, things can start to feel eerie. Most people don't sleep well the first night they spend in a hotel. The new and unknown environment keeps our brains on high alert, unconsciously poised to protect ourselves from harm, ready to wake at even the slightest sound. Particularly at night, the world outside our room can feel chillingly uncertain. That's why hotels are the perfect locations for a bit of murder, deception and mystery. And for today's episode, we're opening the door to the Regent Hotel in Birmingham, where the novel Hokey Pokey is set. I am delighted to say that Kate Mascarenas, the book's author, is my guest today. Chapter One, A Gothic Nightmare. Hokey Pokey is a book where genres merge and blend together beautifully. It's February 1929. Nora Dickinson is a psychoanalyst checking into the opulent six-storied Regent Hotel in Birmingham to covertly shadow a famous opera singer from Zurich. But when a terrible snowstorm isolates the hotel and its guests from the outside world, reality appears to shift. At first glance, readers might expect Hokey Pokey to be an Agatha Christie-esque high-society murder mystery, but it turns very quickly into something completely different, something supernatural. I asked Kate about the origins of the book and whether she'd always intended it to be a hybrid of genres. All of my books have been sort of pitched as cross-genre, and I always feel slightly surprised, actually. that it, I guess it's where like the, the sort of creative process meets how it's received, that I don't sit down and think, right, I'm going to I'm gonna cross this particular thing with this particular thing and see what happens. I don't even plan. What I tend to do is I start off with like a single image and, you know, a character or two, and I'll spend a couple of months, six weeks, you know, writing two pages a day. And so I've got like this critical mass of words. And then I look at it and I think, okay, what's the through line here? What's my unconscious thrown up? That process is quite intuitive and it doesn't involve much. It's, it's, I think it makes me a pain to my editor. <laughs> it doesn't actually involve sort of much pre-thinking about what kind of traditions this is going to draw from. But I mean, what I think is really nice about it, I think to the extent that I, I had a, a category for it, I did think of it as predominantly Gothic horror. And one of the things about that is, although Gothic is sort of subdivided into, into all of these more specific genres where we have very clear ideas of what the tropes for each are, but certainly traditionally, like the earliest Gothic novels, the bizarreness was built in. You know, sort of in the 18th century, weird things did just suddenly happen out of nowhere when you had these very sort of weird turns and digressions. And, you know, I actually quite like that Gothic has that capacity, that it is slightly tricksy, <laughs> that, you know, it, it can suddenly do things that are quite unexpected. I adore Gothic stories. Yeah, and I, I, I said to you in my notes, I said, this feels a little bit like a lost Sheridan Lafanu novel in, yeah. in the sense that I think it <laughs> it captures all of, of of what you just described of all of that 
batshit madness of some of those stories. But actually, you've been incredibly faithful to the genre. So readers of gothic stories are expecting to see certain things. And one of them is obviously the old dark house, as the trope is known. You, you set this up beautifully through this incredibly elegant art deco hotel in Birmingham, which contains all manner of crazy of crazy things so whilst you've not necessarily set out to do something different and, and cross genres maybe that's your thing maybe that's your specialism yeah. I, I i don't know you've been really faithful to the genre and i do think that had sheridan lafarne been able to read this he would have gone yeah this is this is proper gothic this yeah that's such a lovely connection for you to make and i'm really pleased that it struck you that way because i mean camilla like for people who aren't familiar with camilla it's 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 basically it's a prototypical lesbian vampire story it's a slight forerunner of dracula and there's a lot of sort of vampiric lesbianism in this book um just i don't think it says that's a spoiler i don't think um to, to yeah, say no. that <laughs> Um, so obviously, you know, that was that was an influence that was in my mind while I was redrafting, you know, and once I had a clearer sense of, of what I was aiming towards. And just the idea of it taking place in a hotel. I mean, there were there were kind of a few reasons why I, I kind of wanted to to do a hotel story rather than the more typical hair story. And and some of those were personal, some of those were gothic genre related and just sort of in a in a sort of personal sense I mean I really love staying in hotels but they are deeply uncanny places you know you have all this constant tension between you are you know doing things that are kind of homely that you know it's somewhere where you sleep where you have good food you have good drink but there are, there are all these reminders that you are not at home and you are surrounded by strangers you have these winding corridors and there's also this kind of thing that sort of gets relegated to the back of the mind which well I mean I think Safety conscious women probably are, are sort of pulling the chain across on the door. But there is this implicit risk that somebody you don't know can come in because there are people on staff who who have access. And there are other people who, you know, because there is this constant traffic of, of strangers, you know, that there is the potential for somebody to sort of con their way in. And that idea seemed quite sort of rich in horrific potential for me. And it's, it's kind of where... Nora's, you know, the protagonist in Hokey Pokey, that's one of the first situations that she's encountered, that, you know, that she encounters in the story that, you know, um, sets her down this sort of chain of events. And the, the hotel makes that possible. But I think just in terms of in terms of Gothic, what you want from that Gothic house or castle, um, whichever it might be, is the sense of being overwhelmed, you know, by scale, while also having a sense of unease and claustrophobia as well those two things twin together and there are kind of the precedents for using hotels in a spooky way so you see it crop up in ghost stories and and you know sensation fiction like Wilkie Collins is like a haunted hotel story and you know in the 20th century we've got we've got The Shining <laughs> which has some gothic aspects to it and obviously a, a hotel isolated by a snowstorm I was thinking about I love The Shining anyway I think about it every time I stay in a hotel and I walk down a corridor but the, you know that that sort of that was playing on my mind while I was writing my own story about a, a hotel that's isolated by snow so the, the, there, are, there are kind of all these precedents and um, I think that there's the sense in which you don't want gothic to be it's not a realistic genre, so you don't want it to be too close to reality. But I was also kind of thinking about the fact that if you have the average person who picks up a book in a bookshop, they're not very likely to have been resident in a castle or an enormous house unless it's in the context of staying in one as a hotel. So there is a kind of more immediate link there without it being fully sort of realistic. It is at least something that the, the reader 
might think oh actually yeah I've stayed in a hotel and that aspect of them is kind of creepy so I, I liked that as well as opposed to sort of having the more typical grand house there was a Stanley Kubrick exhibition on a number of years ago and, and when it was in London I went to see it and the most the, the most terrifying bit was they had the dresses that the two twin girls wear in The Shining and it's deeply uncomfortable but I'm glad you brought up The Shining because it did make me think of it not least because it was set in a hotel but also because Nora has this gift that we learn a lot about through her story the gift of mimicry and one of the other characters Leo I think it is refers to her as his Ozolid which I think is brilliant and you learn a lot more about that she has this unique ability to replay in full anything that she hears almost perfectly in the accent of the person. And this is, this is, she, she learned this in utero, right? So this yeah. has been with her for her entire life. I loved how you gave her a gift, but then explained where it came from because it would have been too easy just to not explain that. So I wanted to ask you about moving perspectives throughout the book because right. we spend most of our time in 1929 in Birmingham, but then you do take us back to her childhood and then her time in Zurich where she meets Leo and learns about Bernice and then ends up stalking Bernice across Europe. Now, normally flashing back would suck all the tension out of it, but it didn't. And I was really impressed with how you did that because we learned so much about Nora in the past that explained what she's doing in the present. Was that what you wanted to do initially? Or did you think, do you know what? It was really interesting to see her as a young girl. Right. So I did really want to see her as a, as a young girl. And one of the things I, I wanted that section in her childhood to have a, a slightly dreamlike aspect to it and for it to be at the more, you know, a slightly fairy tale feel, but at the horrific end of fairy tales rather than the happy ending type. So that was that was kind of something that I wanted in the story, just as a kind of development of of the horror that the, the characters were beginning to experience. In terms of the issue with tension, when we think about sort of flashbacks sapping tension, it's because it, it holds the story up. Mm. But if there is forward momentum psychologically for the characters, you do not have that same sense of being held up. So it's that that is the driver, really. And I thought the way that I thought of it to myself was that these were five acts that were each telling a story that added up to a fuller understanding of Nora and where she came from and where she was going, what she was avoiding and, and what she might turn into. And I think seeing it as just the second act rather than a flashback was really helpful to me in terms of structuring the story. It gives your readers a huge dose of dramatic irony, which is extremely important because they learn things about Nora that no one else knows. And so, of course, then when you learn who she is, what she is and what she's capable, you're like, there is real tension now because people are going to start dying in in potentially horrific ways and and you don't you don't disappoint with that but i i really enjoyed that i really enjoyed how you'd gone okay let's see her as a young a young girl and then let's explore how she's ended up as this adult that she has done and i think in doing it that way as opposed to just telling us random stories from her childhood that don't mean anything it explains so much when you returned to birmingham later on about what she's doing and of course she is discovering things about herself in re as we are as well isn't she you know she's learning i think that was key actually is that repression's really important in gothic nora has had her head messed about within various ways so she has a memory of things 
she's also been told no no that memory didn't happen right so in some ways her sort of her growing sense of re-establishing what has really happened to her and the aspects that are real it isn't going to be linear so she doesn't go to that hotel secure in the knowledge that the things that happened in act two actually happened she's not sure of that until the end of the first act so that kind of i think it was it was psychologically important chapter two crafting the horror There is a huge amount of psychological trauma and tension in this book, but some of the most horrific things that happen have been written in this completely matter-of-fact way. It's as though Kate has done nothing more than put the words onto the page, pure and simple. This beautifully understated writing style made everything much more frightening. Something ghastly would appear out of nowhere, often catching me off guard, and I loved it. Simple and wonderfully restrained. To some extent... When I start a new project, I'm reacting to whatever I've written most recently. And my second book had been, relatively for me, quite a warm sort of family drama about doll makers. And when I when I moved on to book three, I thought I really want to I really want to understand how to scare the reader. That's what I want to sort of work on creatively. Like what what are actually the because I had a very intuitive sense you know, as somebody who really enjoys horror films, I've got I've got a really intuitive sense of what the visual and auditory cues are for horror in a film or even in a radio. I mean, I buy in books and, you know, I quite often I'll listen to like Fear on 4 on Radio 4 or like ghost stories while I'm doing that. And I, I, I felt very instinctively, I knew what sort of visual cues and, and, and audio cues get somebody ready to be frightened. But I thought, I don't actually know. In a really sort of formal sense, I need to work out what are the, what are the rhetorics of horror and one of the things that I kind of struck on early is what we've already talked about with Nora's mimicry, because there is something, you know, I think children understand this, you know, when you have that experience of repeating a word to yourself over and over again, and you get that semantic satiation until you can't, it becomes this weird, unfamiliar thing. So I thought, okay, so there's something in repetition. And when people write, you know, about how the uncanny works and, you know, they talk about doubles and doppelgangers and, and that sort of thing, that all fits very nicely into that. In terms of the that kind of coolness of tone and saying things in, in quite a spare way, I think some of that relates to Nora's characterization as well. Mm-hmm. Because she, you know, because of the things that have happened to her, she doesn't have a sense of herself as, as being quite fully human. In, in some ways, she's not, <laughs> you know, in a very literal way. And she tends to speak of herself in these very mechanical terms. So she describes herself as a phonograph. She describes herself as a dictaphone. You know, as you've said, her lover calls her an ozolid, which is just like a kind of mid-century photocopier. So there's kind of, there's all of these ways in which she describes herself as as, as almost like automaton-like. And I think that that ties in to that sense of detachment within the telling of the story. What I enjoyed most about her character arc is that it's almost as if when we first meet her she's more than happy to become anyone else other than herself yeah and there becomes a period through the middle and the sort of the latter parts where it's a long time since we last heard her or saw her mimic particularly bernice and it's almost as if that is the cue for her journey of self-discovery to to sort of learning about herself is that she stops mimicking as she learns who, or, and this isn't really a spoiler because you've, you've said it already, or I, I should say what she is, you know, as a creature 
slash person slash whatever whatever we end up um concluding but i enjoyed that because the mimicry does stop doesn't it as her relationship with bernice develops it does and then well she has some back and forth <laughs> right i think what i was interested in creating her pairing with bernice is that bernice is a character she's she's an opera singer she she's very beautiful she's a, a kind of celebrity when you know celebrity still sort of in its early days and she really needs to be adored you know that is that is her thing and in that sense she's a brilliant foil for Nora because Nora needs somebody to be obsessed with always right. you know that that's part of, you know she's she's been sort of brought up in a role where she's kind of secondary she's allocated this sort of secondary echoing type role where she, you know she's she has to sort of mirror back you know what the most important person in her life does and that's kind of something that she returns to again and again it's also it's it's the connection to Bernice and it's when she accepts that her memories are real as well I think those two things together are what enables her for an extended period to do things that are more fully her right Mm. As, as an individual rather than as this kind of echo one of the things I like about gothic is that it it's not just that it has monsters in it, whether they're of the you know the, the supernatural kind or the or the human kind. It's that your protagonist is often trying to work out are they the monster, mm-hmm. right? And you know the, the, there are, there are a number of ways that could go, and sometimes they sometimes they defeat it, and sometimes they don't. Sometimes they give into it, and that's an interesting idea. I think that there is something that might feel relieving that you finally have this. Uh, you, you don't have to reconcile this dissonance anymore. That you might feel all of these awful things about yourself and then when you give give into them it's like suddenly there's a, a feeling of wholeness even though it's disastrous for everybody involved so that's kind of that was a, a feature of gothic that i was really interested in looking at i'm delighted you used the word mirror in terms of talking about her mimicry because i mean that is perhaps one of the best gothic symbols that we can that we can possibly have i loved how you set up the rules of traveling to another place through a mirror and there is one wonderfully understated comment where one of the characters is essentially explaining the rules of how this works and i won't sort of go into it but it doesn't spoil anything but there is one comment about in in terms of where you end up you can end up wherever you like providing the mirror is not covered and i loved that because the, the notion of covering a mirror has so much religious and social significance yeah. for many, many people. I just thought that was a brilliant, just little slice of gothic that you that, that you put in there. But she learns that skill, doesn't she? Yeah, she does. And it does, it plays, I mean, covering mirrors plays a role in funerals for lots of people, I think. Right. I mean, my background, so I'm Catholic. And I mean, Catholicism has has a really funny role within the gothic tradition. You know, sometimes it's this sort of, you know, it, it's there to sort of be demonised. And then there are other there are other sort of gothic stories where there's kind of a more, it's not exactly positive portrayal, but it's it's more on the sort of Catholic worldview of things. And, you know, this wasn't necessarily deliberate on my part, but, you know, I can see that there's actually quite a lot of, quite a lot of Catholic imagery in there. I, I think the idea of, I mean, even just in the sense of sort of, consuming people which is an image that recurs throughout throughout the, the book I mean that's that's obviously something with with some Christian heritage and you know there, there are sort of other things as well that I, I kind of wanted to tie the sort of imagery and mythology of it into 
it's kind of it's it's really tricky when you're when you're sort of writing about anything kind of vampire adjacent, not to use horrible stereotypes. Right. <laughs> it's it's just but because it's sort of it's a sort of a folk monster with you know like there is some sort of anti-Semitic sort of tropes that you know have sort of attached themselves to the vampire along the way and things. And I kind of felt on much more safe ground thinking, okay, I know about Catholicism and that's kind of my, <laughs> that's, I, can, I feel like I can say things about that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it is a vampire, essentially. Yeah, you know, kind of, of, yeah. A vampire yeah. story. It has moments of great humour in it, which I loved, because I think that the Gothic is a genre that that never takes itself too seriously and, and is able, I think, to poke fun at itself. And I love, there's one particular bit, again, it's not really a spoiler because I won't tell you who the character is. Or I won't tell you the, the audience who the character is, but we find a body or I say we find part of a body. And that is perhaps the most matter of fact sentence in the entire novel when we find part of that particular body. And Obviously, this hotel has a great reputation. And if the police were informed, it would become public that this body had been discovered in this hotel. And it was quite clear that something horrific had happened to this person. And that might be bad publicity. So instead of doing the right thing and calling the police, the staff decide to move the body part somewhere else. And you have this wonderful notion then. And that just made me crack up because I thought when it is discovered that this part is something else, the original killer is going to think, well, how the hell did it get there? I, did, <laughs> yeah. I, I just thought that was really funny. Yeah. In a very dark way. <laughs> but, you know, you may as well go all in. Right. No, because... I did actually, I did quite like this sort of, because there is, when you're writing something, you can get really sort of bogged down and sort of like, who knows what, like what you've got, because you've got to keep a handle on, on what different states of knowledge are for all the characters mm. all the time. That's, you know, that's really important to making sure your story makes sense. And there is a temptation when you're amongst the weeds of it, to try and think, well, you know, how am I going to work out how they find out this thing? When actually the most the most logical thing in that situation is for him to be, you know, to say, well, hang on a minute. <laughs> what? How did that happen? OK, yeah. you know, it just it's just like a thing that, you know, they're not party to. Well, I mean, um, it, so when it is discovered <laughs> and, the, and when the, the killer says something like, yeah, I have no idea how that, <laughs> no idea how that happened. Well, I just thought yeah. that was wonderful because I'm like, I'm imagining the killer discovering this bit of knowledge and thinking yeah. what the hell has happened here yeah yeah insane. but also and it, it, can, it can go to character as well and I don't think the killer is alone in this I think there are, there are sort of several characters within the novel who have this attitude of sort of extreme individualism and a kind of cavalierness about you know what certain people might sort of think or do and you know to sort of to, to not actually even be terribly concerned <laughs> with with who has moved this body. It's just like, oh, yeah, that's a thing that happened. Yeah, you know? exactly. Um, no, it's a wonderfully yeah, gothic. Yeah. It's like, I would just move the body <laughs> somewhere else. It's it's not yeah. it's not helping us by having it here. So we'll just we'll move or we'll, we'll yeah. put it in a box and we'll move it somewhere, which I yeah. thought was which I thought was great. Chapter three, another body. 
in order to truly feel a sense of entrapment and tension in this hotel, all the characters have to feel real. There is no room for minor characters who serve as nothing but plot devices. We need fully fleshed out personalities and motives. And in Hokey Pokey, they are all so beautifully drawn. Even the staff who must see everything have a role to play. It made me wonder to what extent the staff are in on this, having likely stumbled across their fair share of bodies over the years. One of the members of staff, actually, at, at one point they comment on it because there is, for the Regent Hotel, <laughs> there's there's a certain point at which they see their deaths go up. <laughs> and, uh, it's like, you know, what's, what's going on here? It's like suddenly... But I, there were certain things that I was reading, I guess, from the perspective of having that sense of everybody who's in the hotel, you know, the guests and the people who were sort of below stairs. And there are a lot of Between the War novels that cover that really nicely, you know, the the most famous one's Grand Hotel. But actually the one that I really liked was Arnold Bennett's Imperial Palace. And it's not, it's a very, very long book. And it, it came out shortly after Grand Hotel and you can totally see why it hasn't had the same lasting impact because it doesn't really have a plot. It's just like this very long account of these various sort of things, these little social contretemps, you know, that, that that go wrong and and they're being fixed. And you sort of, there's like very sort of detailed explanations of what every single department in this, this hotel, which I think is based on the Savoy, you know, they have their own, uh, they have their own printing press in-house. They make all of their own furniture. They have like this enormous laundry. They have all of these different functions and you find out about every single one. And I love that. I love that kind of detail. So that was something that I kind of reveled in. And I liked occasionally drawing out from sort of, I I tend to use close third, even if I'm, if if I'm switching perspective, I tend to use close, close third, but I did do a little bit of omniscient in this because I wanted that sense of sort of pulling out and knowing what was happening sort of in particular areas. So like in the bar, you know, what drives the barman? What's he doing when he comes up with all of these? So cocktails and yeah. There's one beautiful sequence where you talk about the hotel waking up in the morning and coming to life and people lighting fires and and people getting laundry and linen ready. And I love the shift into omniscience at that at that particular point because you think these hotels are they are machines, aren't they? They are, they are hugely yeah. complex. Yeah, beasts. they have these all these little all of these little components and all of that stuff was actually so much fun to research. I mean, it's kind of, it's a fantastical story. So I I have a freer hand than a a straightforward historical, but, you know, it still does need to be authentic and and rooted in reality. And so the Psychiatric Institute I I researched and the working of the hotel I researched. And, uh, you know, I was kind of surprised that there was a lack of monograph, you know, about 1920s hotels that doesn't really exist. We have historic hotels in Birmingham where the where the novel is set, but they they weren't that cooperative to be honest. They weren't that interested. So what I was looking at essentially was primary sources. So trade ephemera, receipts, guest books, um, postcards that people sent, all of this stuff that you know, old menus that just sort of gave you all of these hints of what it was actually like to be in these places and what kind of amenities and services were provided. And then there was you know the, all sorts of really interesting trade literature, like the, the sort of management guides and periodicals that a hotel manager would have looked at there was a really nice point I I mean I didn't use it in the end I was kind of I'm I'm kind of loath to use real people in a fantastical story because I didn't want to think about sort of the ethical implications of transplanting some poor 
you know, support hotel worker from 1920 into this lesbian vampire gothic horror. Didn't didn't feel like that was a route I wanted to go down. But there was (laughs) there was one point where I'd looked. um, It was a little bit later than the novel was set. The novel set in 1929. And I was looking at the 1939 register of occupations for the the biggest hotel in, in Birmingham, the Grand. And it got everybody's name, their job role, their age. And you could see like the, the variety of names, but also that it was a family run business. And you could see sort of the sort of stage of career development that somebody, you know, might be at, at a particular a particular age. And that felt that, that actually there was something really potent about that, that, that sort of connection of being able to see just in data, <laughs> something about how the hotel was run. And I, I think that's a nice thing about setting something in the past is you do get those moments, even if you also have days where you're like trying to establish something very small, like whether you can place a telephone call from Birmingham to Zurich in a public phone box. I mean, it's like that kind of thing. Just It's like this time suck. <laughs> you, you've even drawn an outline and a map of all of the floors yeah. of the hotel. It's right at the very beginning. It's beautiful. You've clearly, you, you know, you've clearly, if not literally, you have, you know, emotionally walked this ground, haven't you, by thinking about this hotel? Yeah. So I'm, I'm just kind of, I'm somewhat used to drawing plans because of, of dolls has making, but um, I actually, I didn't even mention that I'd done these plans. They were just part of what I'd sketched as, you know, while I was, while I was working out the story. When it got to pre-publicity, my publicist had said to me, oh, have you got any visuals? Like anything that, you know, I can, I can include with this pitch. And I said, oh yeah, I've got like these old sketches of the plans. And they looked and they said, well, why are these not in the book? (laughs) So, so they were actually quite a late addition to the draft um, because I'd kind of just thought, oh yeah, that's just like my prep. And I'd kind of put it to the side, but once once they said it, I thought, oh, obviously people are going to want to like be able to reference where they are. No, it was, I loved it because uh, again, It wasn't just helpful. It was also a masterful slice of misdirection because actually, again, you know, you think you're getting into this Agatha Christie-esque murder mystery detective story meets Cluedo, you know, with with rooms that connect with with ways of finding, you know, your way around the hotel without being seen, et cetera, et cetera. And you do deliver that. But the shift at the end of part one into part two is such a departure from what I thought I was reading that when it lands, you're like, oh, my God, this is a completely different story. And it made me then see the hotel differently when I understood why it was important that you'd put it in. I'm I'm staggered that it was such a late addition. I really am. I think that's that's amazing. But again, I thought I was I thought I was reading one thing and then it turned into another. And I and I adored that. And then I felt less comfortable about looking at the visuals because I thought, I don't know what's hiding behind any of these. I don't know how you move from one place to the other. I don't have this skill. I don't have the shining. I'm I'm kind of if I were in this hotel, I'm crapping my pants now. And I mean, I also like the, the kind of the thing with the mirrors, it almost makes a nonsense of the plans. Yeah. You know, if, you, if, you, if you can just sort of hop through a mirror, then the, the plan cease to be relevant. Um, I know. But yeah, I, I, yeah. I just love I loved the fact that you'd gone to the trouble of putting it in, which made me think, well, actually, if there's a reason this is here. So I will do you the courtesy of actually studying this and, and work it out. And when I could start to see it in my own mind, it brings the ephemera as you beautifully called it to life because you can you can hear the cocktail shaker then you know you can get a sense as to what the below ground bits are actually like and it again ticks all the gothic tropes because it's bringing this 
you know, old dark house or old dark castle to life. And, and that I found again, just brilliantly Gothic, but I was not expecting the shift that you, that you put in front of me. So thank you for that. <laughs> it's okay. So yeah. what's next for you, Kate? This book is out now. Um, are is. you allowing yourself any downtime or are you yes, straight on with something else? Yeah, yeah, I am. I, I have a few sort of ongoing medical issues that, that mean I need to I need to take a break. And I think particularly because, you know, we've had this, we've had the pandemic. <laughs> so they've got various sort of obstacles in, you know, it just sort of slows everything down. So I think uh, I am going to be taking a little break. I'm kind of noodling around with bits of nonfiction at the moment and uh, I'm not quite sure which of those is going to sort of take shape and and become my next project. And as I say, because I because I'm not a planner, it's always a bit of a voyage of discovery for me. Anyway, I I also I have this kind of sense like when when people say, oh, what are you what are you working on next, or, or, or what are you just starting? I always feel like that the sort of early ideas they're almost like a skittish deer. Like I can't I have to handle them really carefully in case yeah. they just run off. So yeah, so there's always that sort of sense of delicacy just sort of, you know, when I'm transitioning to something new. Well, enjoy your time off. Hokey Pokey is out now. It is an absolute triumph of a novel. Kate Mascarenas, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. A massive thank you then to Kate Mascarenas for today's episode. And to recap, what have we learned? There's a real danger when using flashbacks that you'll sap the energy and tension from your story. But Kate says the key to avoiding that is by ensuring there's forward momentum in those flashbacks. The narrative doesn't stand still during those moments, but rather continues unfolding and unraveling. You may have a good intuitive sense of how to scare a reader or make them laugh or feel some other kind of emotion. But it may also be worth finding out how to engage these emotions in a formal sense. Look at the research and rhetoric to see if your intuition is correct, or if there are extra layers you can add to your writing. And finally, consider drawing the places you're writing about, not necessarily for anyone else, but for yourself. It may help you better visualise your characters' journeys and more easily piece things together, and your editor may even include them in the finished book. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Haywood. You can get in touch directly at info at behindthespine.co.uk. We'd love to hear from you. We're also on Twitter and Facebook as at Behind the Spine and Instagram as at Behind the Spine Podcast. Check out the show notes for additional information and a full transcript of this episode. You can also sign up to the email newsletter for updates about our exclusive live and in-person residency at the Grouch Show Club in London. Titled Inside Stories, these events are not recorded and not repeated and are designed to put you, the audience, both behind the spine and in the room. If you'd like to go on the guest list, please drop us a line. Goodbye for now, stay safe and keep writing. This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk. 